0: Hello everybody and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale and you know I love Halloween season. We've done some spookier episodes for Halloween in the past, so this year I wanted to keep that going, but we're doing it a little differently this time. This week my guest is writer and horror movie expert Sean Ingham, author of Bram Stoker Award nominated We Don't Go Back, A Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror. In addition to writing the best film essays I've ever read, Sean knows a great deal about some very esoteric subjects, so I thought that they would be the perfect person to interview about Madame Blavatsky. Although Madame Blavatsky is no longer a household name, her influence on the modern world cannot be overstated. A major figure in the spiritualism movement of the 19th century, her teachings led to the foundation of the modern New Age movement, influencing everyone from Aldous Huxley and H.P. Lovecraft to Aleister Crowley and David Bowie. Even Dungeons and Dragons takes ideas from Madame Blavatsky. Although she was proven to be a charlatan, her theosophical society still has followers to this day. While the New Age movement now encompasses everything from yoga and crystal healing to angels and oracle cards, Blavatsky's ideas weren't exactly harmless. Many of her teachings focused on race, attempting to legitimize the idea that some races were inherently inferior through mysticism and pseudoscience. As ridiculous as it sounds, her root races theory influenced Nazis and ultimately led to the Holocaust. Not a lot is known about Blavatsky's actual life, so this week we're talking about her ideas and her legacy, how she was debunked and why it didn't matter to her followers, and how her idea of a master race changed the world, and not for the better. This is a huge subject, and we really discuss it in a pretty casual way, touching on a lot of different aspects of it, so if you want a more complete history, Sean recommends the book Madame Blavatsky's Baboon by Peter Washington. I have a copy myself, and it's a really fascinating read. So without further ado, here's my talk with Sean. Alright everybody, my guest today, I've been so looking forward to this, my guest is Sean Ingham, who is a prolific writer, the author of the Bram Stoker Award nominated We Don't Go Back, A Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror, and most importantly, one of my oldest friends. Welcome to the show, Sean, I'm so glad to
1: have you. Wow, wow, I'm one of your oldest friends, that's wild, isn't it? I think I met you, what, 14 like, years ago?
0: It was like 20 years ago, almost. My god, how Can long?
1: Can believe it? No, that's wild, isn't it? It's um, crazy. We were, we were introduced by a housemate of mine, I believe, mm. Graham Graham Isaac, who is still tending bars in Seattle, last I heard. That's and, right. And running poetry nights there.
0: Another great writer.
1: Another great writer. Um, so yeah, wow. Um, can't believe it's been that long, though, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, like, it's crazy.
1: Wow. You can't
0: believe it. Yeah, wow. it was. Um, yeah. It was. Oh, yeah, about twenty years ago, I moved to Wales. So absolutely nuts.
1: That is bonkers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, So, I'm a big
1: fan of your podcast from the beginning. I have been supporting you from the beginning as well because you've just, it's just, I've been recommending you to everybody. I, (laughs) it was wonderful. I was sort of, was in, in a chat online one time and I recommended your podcast to someone random who I didn't know. And they were like, oh, oh, I know that one. Oh, it's that's the woman with the really nice voice. Oh. <laughs> and, like and I'm like, yes, yes, it is.
0: Oh, that's so nice. Yes. Well, gosh, I sure appreciate the support. The the vote of confidence is amazing. Thank you so very much. Yeah, yeah and uh, actually your blog is my favorite. Um, I'm always reading Room 207 Press. Uh, anytime like a new horror movie comes out, I'm like, oh my god, what did Sean say? I've got to read it. So <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm I'm actually I'm actually I'm in the process of writing up about Infinity Pool um right. at the moment um so i've nearly finished that and i will actually make that public because mostly i've been doing it on the patreon for the last few months
2: mm-hmm.
1: as well but yeah um because i have a patreon too um oh, well, that's not, awesome. not, you know but obviously support jess and then support my patreon
0: yes you, you can know. support right, no, both. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay,
0: yeah absolutely so. and we'll have all the details at the end for sure all so, right you have a lot of. Uh, really amazing kind of research interest and I mean I could just talk to you for hours days even (laughs) so I mean today we are going to focus on uh, we're talking about Madame Blavatsky now this is a historical figure I think a lot of people have heard of but people don't necessarily know what was going on and I mean does anybody does anybody really know what was going on with Madame Blavatsky Uh, so that's kind of what we're talking about that's
1: the question
0: (laughs) right so uh, for context before we get there let's start with the spiritualism movement so what was the spiritualism movement and how did it take off in the 19th century
1: or rather what is the spiritualism movement it still Mm -hmm. exists in a small sort of way even now um but back in the 19th century when it took off and it took off in london and new york almost simultaneously but in new york you had this thing you had Um, famous you had people who basically claimed to be able to speak to people on the other side this was often presented in terms of christianity Mm -hmm. so spiritualists were often very much about the singing of hymns and things and mediumship sort of developed along the lines of um spiritual mediumship you know you're basically sitting at a table you're having a seance the medium is overshadowed we've all seen those movies we've seen the others we've seen the changeling we've seen all these movies where you have the seance and stuff it's kind of like that um physical mediumship is a thing that's not talked about so much it basically went out of fashion by the 1970s it was a thing you know you levitating spirit trump trumpets ectoplasm, manifesting spirits, and things like that. In the 1970s, this became difficult because in the 1970s, that's when you had freely, well, commercially available filming equipment. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. Right from the beginning, a lot of people in the spiritualist movement were Very patently charlatans. Yes. And a lot of these things were done with magic tricks. You know, when the table starts levitating and moving around, this is often done by people moving their knees creatively. Mm -hmm. It's done by somebody under the table. Um, You have ectoplasm. And I have faked ectoplasm on video. I really wanted to
0: ask you about that. And
1: (laughs) Ectoplasm is easily made using muslin cloth mm-hmm. otherwise known as cheesecloth or the cloth that you use for babies' vom cloths and the stuff you pick up for baby sick when you like feeding your baby you know i was a stay-at-home dad for many years um so i've fed many babies and i've been vomed on and <laughs> these cloth the thing about cheesecloth muslin cloth particularly is that when it's damp you can squish it up very very tight Mm -hmm. into very small places and also when it's damp in the dark particularly under a red light it can look like something other than cloth as -hmm. well so you get muslin if you wanted to like vomit out ectoplasm which was a favorite thing what you do is you get like a, a piece of muslin cloth and you roll it up into a very very tight wad and then feed it down your throat working very hard to suppress the gag reflex. Mm -hmm. And then, so it's like sitting down your esophagus. And then when it came, you would vomit it up and pull it out and then stretch it out. And because it's wet and damp and slimy looking, it genuinely looks like slime. Take it out. But more importantly, people in the room are expecting it to be ectoplasm and when you do this they see glowing slime right Mm. because it's just for a split second it is what they want to see there's a famous incident of a british medium and this is something i've been writing about for ages so this is like something that i will eventually manage to publish um there was a british a, a significant british medium called gordon higginson who was caught faking in the 1970s it didn't do any difference whatsoever to his career which is something we'll talk about with madame blavatsky Mm -hmm. um but he at one point uh, used to be well known for being able to manifest spirits from a spirit cabinet Mm -hmm. a spirit cabinet was basically a chair with four curtains around it and this, the investigator was hugely disappointed to see that when he manifested a spirit, it was the medium with a sheet of muslin over his head pretending to be a ghost.
0: <laughs> oh, no.
1: Obviously. Mm-hmm. And they even found the place where the muslin was hidden on a chair that was different from any other chair in the room. And the fact is there were people in that meeting who were able to testify under oath that they absolutely saw beloved members of their family coming out of that manifestation chamber, because the memory does cheat we see what we want to see. We see what we expect to see. Mm. I mean, the camera lies as well, but it lies in a different way. And, to see this you know with someone they the the, the um the investigator I seem to remember who actually asked if he could bring a camera into the meeting and um and and they're like oh we're going to have to mask the medium and then they come back and they're like um, yeah the spirits say no but yeah um spirits don't want a camera in the meeting but he's sitting at the back of the meeting with his colleague and they're both sitting there going that's gordon with a sheet on his head pretending to be a ghost and that was pretty much the end of physical mediumship but this is something that's being done all the way from the mid 19th century we're talking from like the 1840s 1850s all the way through now one of the earliest parapsychologists and this brings us to our main subject actually was a guy called henry s Mm Olcott, and henry Olcott wrote this book that i'm holding in my hand and i'm waving at jessica for those of you listening (laughs) at home um called people from the other world which is essentially Olcott's investigation into spiritualist phenomena and what's interesting it's dedicated to Alfred Russell Wallace the famous naturalist and the author of the theory of natural selection you know the other guy who came up with evolution at about the same time as Darwin but didn't have quite as good publicity Mm. And William Crookes, the discoverer of the the metal thallium, Wallace and Crookes, both scientists, both did actually do a bit of parapsychology. Because one of the cool things about science and what a lot of people who are into alternative science fail to understand is that scientists don't, good scientists don't generally discount these things out of hand. They do tend to look at them And then to have reasons as to why they discount them. Olcott is important. In 1875, Olcott got a letter from Madame Blavatsky, who at the time was in New York, being a bit of a medium. Mm -hmm. Now, Madame Blavatsky was apparently married to a Count Blavatsky in Russia as a young woman and ran away from him very early on so she was mm-hmm. she was married she was she was technically a russian countess she claimed there's no way of knowing if any of the claims of her early life are true some are more provable than others she was already in her 60s at this point she already claimed to have a long life. She claimed that she'd run away. She'd gone on adventures around Europe, that she'd worked in the circus, that she'd been a dancer, that she had traveled on foot to Tibet, to the mystical mountain hideaway of Shambhala and met the great cosmic masters, Kutumi, Moria, and others. Including, you know, reincarnations of Jesus Christ, you know, Maitreya, all these people, and... Typical she, gap year. I know, right? A total <laughs> gap year experience. Go imagine this sort of like stoutly built, five foot nothing, chain smoking woman with the most amazing blue eyes. You've obviously you've seen pictures of Madame Blavatsky. She's very striking. Every photograph of Madame Blavatsky, she has these incredibly striking, staring blue eyes, clear mm. blue eyes, and she could totally hold a room. She had. She, big cult leader energy Mm -hmm. she gave cult leader which is kind of important as well because one of the things about a cult leader is that cult leaders are always thought to have such amazing inescapable charisma Mm -hmm. and the thing about a cult leader is that a cult leader has amazing inescapable charisma to the people they have amazing inescapable charisma for Mm -hmm. but not to everybody That they don't have amazing, inescapable charisma for. Right. So you see a figure, and I mean, you see that with politicians as well. You see a figure like Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, right? And there are people who will follow those men to the gates of hell itself. 28% of the Republican base will ride or die Trump supporters, no matter what he is proven to do, what he says, what he does. Well, to many of us, we look at this figure and see a self-aggrandizing, selfish, stupid monster. Yeah. Same with Boris Johnson. And I, I think this is the case with a figure like Levatsky. To some people, she was incredibly magnetic. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of people who are, were like, basically, she's a charlatan. She turned up with letters from beyond written in green ink, which he manifested from thin air okay. addressed to addressed to Henry Olcott. They became best friends. They had like common pet nicknames for each other. I think they called themselves Melody and Jack <laughs> and they became, they became chums. They became pals and they continued their investigations together very quickly. And there's a room in New York in the middle of 1875. Um, Shortly after, people from the other world, which as you can sort of see from this copy of the book, is like, there's 500 pages, very densely written piece of Victorian parapsychology. So he'd been working on this for years, right? Mm -hmm. This was published. And about the time this was published, he's having a meeting with some people. And they're like, we should form a society. They just had a talk about the occult sciences of ancient Egypt, And all these people in the room said, we should form a society. I second that. I third that. Here, here, all of that. Everybody voted to form a society. What are we going to call the society? And someone pulls out a dictionary of philosophy and flips through it. And they stumble across the word theosophy, Mm -hmm. which was last used in Greece in late antiquity. So it was used by some later Neoplatonic philosophers to describe the idea of a theistic philosophy, which admitted science as well, which is important because Olcott was a lover of science. Olcott attaches a very Victorian scientific method to his parapsychology. And Olcott and Blavatsky become the leaders of the Theosophical Society. A society which is purported to join science and religion. And the Theosophical Society sort of exists mm-hmm. to today.
0: Right. So at the time that uh, she co-founded the Theosophical Society, what were their ideas and, and beliefs? Uh, how were they different from the rest of the spiritualism movement?
1: The main thing was, was that Madame Blavatsky was really, really into Hinduism. Mm-hmm. She didn't have a lot of time for Christianity. She sort of like paid lip service to it because you had to, because you're Victorians and you're white people. But she was really, really into Hinduism. She really dug Hinduism. She'd read all the Vedas and everything and all the Upanishads. And she'd gone through the Bhagavad Gita. And quite early on, she basically synthesized big chunks of Hinduism, sanitized it for white Western consumption, Mm -hmm. And put it together in a book called Isis Unveiled. Right. Where she basically syncretized it with a lot of Western religion beliefs and paid lip service to scientific beliefs of the time, particularly ones about evolution and about science and about life and things. And stitched that together with a healthy bit of Victorian science fiction which she had gleaned because she was a big fan of edward bulwer lytton lord lytton now best remembered for the lord lytton award which is the award every year for the worst opening paragraph of a book
0: it was a dark and stormy night
1: it was a dark and stormy (laughs) night but lord lytton wrote a bunch of very odd science fiction Specifically, one called The Coming Race, which was about an ancient group of superhuman people, a sort of branch species of mankind that lived down under the ground and were ready to take over because they'd evolved into something else. Mm-hmm. And they harnessed the power of Vril, Vril being life energy. British listeners will probably be surprised to know that vril actually is part of our general culture because there is a well-known traditional comestible that you can buy in supermarkets um which is called bovril which is a hot drink made from beef um but it was originally invented by a theosophist and it's actually bovine vril it's life energy from the cow It's cow juice, but it's cow energy. So yeah, Bovril is where we still get Vril, but Vril, life energy, is is a thing that runs through Madame Blavatsky's work and will later be used and run with by a follower of Madame Blavatsky who went and formed his own thing, Rudolf Steiner, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: who is now best known for founding Waldorf schools or Steiner schools. Right. And who, when he left the Theosophical Society, set up his own splinter group, which was called the Anthroposophical Society, which is now more active than Theosophy because Steiner schools exist.
0: Gosh, you know, you mentioned that book and um, I did actually come across that when I was researching something else a couple of years ago. And uh, what re- really put me off, of course, I found it on Amazon because you know, like a lot of these things, you know, when they're, yeah. you know, kind of out of print, like you can get all these, you know, umpteen copies or whatever. And a lot of them are very cheap, but I found <laughs> that one on Amazon. And the reviews are full of actual Nazis, and they're like, oh yeah, this guy had the right idea. And it's like crazy science fiction. But we're going to have to talk about the kind of racial element later on, because when people hear about this, they don't necessarily appreciate how much it influenced some of the worst parts of the 20th century. So, in the Secret Doctrine, uh, Madame Blavatsky outlines her ideas about the universe and how humans came to exist. And part of this is her frankly batshit root races theory. The root um, race
1: theory, yeah, that sounds races. Yes. <laughs> so, oh my what, God. What okay, so Madame Blavatsky, and I, I mean this in the second volume of the secret doctrine which is basically madame blavatsky's like magnum opus is like mm-hmm. the big thing it exists in two volumes although annie Besant and charles webster led would write later write a third one claiming that they co-wrote it with madame blavatsky or that she ghost wrote it or something
0: from beyond I the hope. grave i hope
1: yeah well yeah you see what i did there can you, but, can yeah, you know, imagine
0: and, how long it would take to write a book like with a ouija board or something.
1: Right, <laughs> right. It's it's wild. Um, in the second volume of the secret doctrine, which is called Anthropogenesis, Madame Blavatsky outlines her theory of rounds and races. The idea is is that human evolution, rather than Darwin, um, which she who she repudiated, she famously owned a stuffed baboon, in which she kept in her flat. In New York, which she dressed in a suit and tie and spectacles and had under its arm a copy of the origin of the species.
0: So just to be clear, though, this is like a full size, like taxidermy baboon. Yeah. How would you even come across something like that?
1: I, I, I mean, you're an expert on Victorians, right? you yeah. <laughs> you've probably got a better <laughs> idea than I have. But she had this thing. I mean, she got quite rich from the theosophy. She could, like, spend her money on all sorts of ridiculous shit. And she had, like, some really juvenile tastes. Like, she right. really liked practical jokes and toilet humour. You know, she's one of those sort of, like, she's basically like your embarrassing embarrassing auntie who likes whoopee cushions. And it's this the sort of thing that she had a really juvenile sense of humour. So, for example, she knew... um Charles Webster led better or CW led better as a member of her society, he's a senior member of She always used to call him WC will led better. Yeah. Like, because I'm it was sure funny. That. Right. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> bet you adored that. But of course, she sees she's the leader of his cult and he can't do anything about it. But she in, in the secret doctrine, she repudiates Darwin and says that's not how human evolution went. Human evolution is basically a succession of seven rounds. Mm -hmm. Each round is the cycle of human evolution happening on a different planet, starting on Mercury. There were seven root races on Mercury. And then that five million years or however long it took, that went to Venus. There were seven root races on Venus and we're the third round, right? And then what happens is that the root races... Began again on Earth, Mm -hmm. and the first root race of the human race were the Polarians or Hyperboreans, and they were basically gaseous. Um, The first root race, which had seven sub-races, were all different. So I don't don't know how do you get a sub-race of of basically a cloud of gas. (laughs) I don't don't know. know, They're gaseous. (laughs) And then like the second root race, also in the north. The Hyperborean, yeah, okay. The first one's the Polarians, the second ones are the Hyperboreans, and the Hyperboreans are sort of gelatinous. Mm-hmm. Um, Rudolf Steiner and also, um, another guy called, um, Elliot, uh, William Scott Elliot, would go into great detail about this, um, later on, but. Steiner basically described the the hyperbrians as basically being sort of gelatinous and rubbery and boneless and because Steiner had this idea that like um water was thinner and air was thicker back then so you could swim through the air and these people sort of flo- floated through the air they sort of flew through the air and they sort of like went around like giant fish eating Air creatures from their mouths, like plankton. All this makes
0: a lot more sense when you consider uh, psychotropics at this time
1: and how common they were. Well, right. um, The third root race is where it gets a bit tricky and complicated Mm -hmm. because Madame Blavatsky said the third root race appeared in Lemuria. The fourth root race, with its seven sub races, appeared in Atlantis. And the root races of Atlantis, they start with the Ramoa Howls, or it, it's it's spelt really weirdly, and I've never been able to find an accepted, consistent pronunciation of it. Sure. I don't even know if Madame Blavatsky knew how to pronounce it right. And then you had the Slavatlis, but then you had the Turanians and the Toltecs, and so on. And suddenly they start sounding like Victorian names of actual ethnic groups. Right. And eventually Atlantis fell beneath the waves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Donovan intensifies. And then a fifth root race arose, which began in what is now India. And the fifth root race was the supreme race that was currently in existence. The coming race had not yet come back. You see, Bullwilliton, the coming race, the fifth root race was there the Aryans this idea comes
0: back to Madame Blavatsky
1: yes it does now the Aryans include people from the Indian subcontinent and white people okay and this is important because even right up to the period of the Nazis Indian people were Aryans
0: Now, that's something that I don't think a lot of people realize.
1: No. So Aryans actually includes white people and brown people. So you have Blavatsky and she comes up and, you know, she takes this Victorian scientific idea, which was still put in textbooks Mm -hmm. right up until the 1920s and 30s, right up until the Second World War. I... My dad had a copy of the Chambers Encyclopedia from 1928, Mm -hmm. a family encyclopedia from a respected publisher. And the entry on race includes a table of the three subspecies of the human race with things like their hair, their height, their build, their intelligence and the philosophies that their cultures produce and which ones are better. Oh, my God. This is standard things that are taught in schools. You will remember hearing about the John Scopes monkey trial. Yeah. You know, and the, the accepted um, narrative of the monkey trial is that John Scopes was teaching Darwinian evolution and the Williams Jennings Bryan was a fundamentalist who basically wanted to teach that the world was created in six days.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In fact, John Scopes was teaching race evolution, He was teaching race theory, and I'm not you talking critical race theory. We're talking race theory of that kind. And -hmm. he was teaching evolution to prove that black people were inferior. William Jennings Bryan, although a convinced Christian, was also one of the most prominent social progressives of his day. Mm -hmm. And his argument was that all men were created equal in the eyes of God. And that Darwin's theories were racist and therefore wrong. But we forget that bit. Scopes won because the jury were racists, Mm -hmm. not because the jury were into reason. So these were accepted scientific views of the 19th century. And Blavatsky was basically like. Okay, here's the three subspecies. The three subspecies that are recognized by science are the Lemurians, the Atlanteans, and the Aryans. Mm -hmm. The Lemurians are the black people, and they will all be dying out soon, and the Atlanteans became Asian people and Semitic people as well, including Arabs and Jews. Okay. And... And then the Aryans are white people and brown people, people from India, because they're people from the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. You know, the Nazis did actually like making roads into India. The Nazis liked theosophy. Mm-hmm. The Nazis totally took on the, the idea of Aryanism as a thing. This resulted in Heinrich Himmler sending an expedition in 1938 to Tibet to find the roots of the white race,
0: so her ideas like they they survived her for so long that they yeah. they drove the Nazis like that this sort of this idea yeah. that they had about about the races this came from Madame Blavatsky,
1: yeah, and of course, specifically, according to Madame Blavatsky, Jews aren't Aryan.
0: So, how much did she kind of capitalize on these like these very racist Victorian ideas? Like how much of that did she just kind of run with it because she knew it was what people wanted to hear at the time? So much!
1: (laughs) So much. And she tied this into like the exotic orientalism Mm -hmm. of like Hinduism. So she was able to set up a national worldwide headquarters in Ajah. Now the Indian home rule movement, which was still sort of existing kind of likes that Indian home rule movement sees these people who are very much into using Hinduism and getting into it and going we're on your side and it's like okay we've got colonialists who want us to like be rise up from our oppressors we can use that so that sort of thing happens so she sets up an in and of course they picked rich people to be theosophists let us be frank Mm-hmm. Right. Um and, you know, right up into the twentieth century, Aldous Huxley mm-hmm. was a theosophist. Um he he wrote um a little judicious theosophy sounds a most excellent thing, um, in a letter. And that so so you know, Brave New World by Huxley is influenced a bit by theosophical ideas. There's a bit of theosophy in Brave New World if you read it now. You have Various other people who were less famous. You have Annie Besant as well, who would later become a massively important figure in the Indian Home Rule movement, even though she's British, Mm -hmm. who was the successor to Madame Blavatsky as Ledbetter was the successor to Olcott. And these views are these things are also basically attached also to the fact that Madame Blavatsky was a consummate, consummate showwoman. Mm-hmm. So she was able to manifest letters written in fresh green ink, which would flutter down from the ceiling and land on the table and say things, addressed to a person in the room and say things like, Madame Levatsky is a very clever person and you should give her all your money and listen to everything she has to say, love, kutu me, Tibet. And <laughs> things like that. Um, possibly not in those exact words, but that's pretty much the substance. She would theatrically smash crockery and Mm -hmm. then unsmash it magically. This is kind of an intro to my favorite Madame Blavatsky story. Okay. So Madame Blavatsky, among other things, was a terrible judge of character. Okay, so she got a letter shortly after setting up in Agile from a woman called Emma Coulomb. And Emma Coulomb had been a former acolyte of hers some years before in Europe. Mrs. Coulomb, and Mr. Coulomb came along as well, got hired to be the housekeepers in Adjark because what had happened was that they'd been, they were stuck in Ceylon. They had made some bad business decisions. Mm -hmm. They were stuck in Ceylon with nowhere to go. They wrote to Madame Blavatsky for help. And she said, oh God, oh yeah, I remember you. Why didn't you come and be my housekeeper in Agile? And they fell out almost instantly. Either she was a terrible housekeeper or Madame Blavatsky was a terrible employer. I suspect it may have been both. Mm-hmm. You've got to bear in mind that the Theosophical Headquarters was built within stomping distance of a Christian college set up by missionaries. And the head of the Christian college really did not like Madame Blavatsky, not least because she was poaching his pupils Mm -hmm. because it was just more fun than the Jesus stuff. So he's he's an enemy. Emma Coulomb becomes an enemy very quickly of Madame Blavatsky but is also the housekeeper when Madame Blavatsky is not there. Between the principal of the Christian College and Mrs. Coulomb, some dirt is dug up. Mm -hmm. And the Society for Psychical Research turn up at Theosophical Headquarters in Adyar. Some investigators turn up. Imagine, if you will, some men, large moustaches, they've always got to have large moustaches, uh-huh. turn up. I, I, I imagine straightforward humorless men with martin shop whiskers turning up at the door, knocking on the door, and Mrs Coulomb's been fired at this point, but not before. She's actually given them a letter explaining That the shrine room where Madame Blavatsky used to do her miracles in Adyar had a cupboard in it, a little shrine cupboard, which contained the things that would be used to make her miracles, the crockery that she would smash. Mm -hmm. However, the wall of the shrine room backed onto her bedroom and there was a panel in the bedroom which could slide back. Through which an accomplice, Mrs. Coulomb, would be able to pass stuff through in the dark when no one was looking. Mm-hmm. Slice of hand would happen. And the cupboard would also contain things like the green ink, the parchment and duplicates of the crockery. The unsmashed crockery to replace the stuff that she just smashes. Mm hmm. The only person there at the headquarters when the Society for Psychical Research turn up is Madame Blavatsky's secretary. And he is a complete believer and he shows them round. And they take a beeline to the shrine room because she's written to them explaining that there is a secret panel. And the story goes that the guy goes right to the shrine room. He shows them there, look, goes, opens, opens the thing says, look, you see... It is quite solid. Knocks hard on the panel at the back of the cupboard, which falls right out, revealing everything. That night, the cupboard became the subject of a bonfire. Wow. Blavatsky is caught, bang to rights, faking. Does this make any difference whatsoever to her reputation? No. She totally braves it. She basically says something like, yeah, but that doesn't mean I wasn't doing miracles. And everybody who believed Madame Blavatsky believed Madame Blavatsky. Mm-hmm. And everybody who didn't believe Madame Blavatsky and thought she was a charlatan still thought she was a charlatan. Yeah. It didn't change anybody's mind. It's totally the Donald Trump tactic. Mm-hmm. You're just brazen it out and go, nope. Because you know no one's mind's going to be changed.
0: Right, right. Everyone's still on the exact same side. So the spiritualism movement, it was really popular among women because it gave them yeah. opportunities to to hold these kind of respected positions that like other religions and other, you know, kind of, I guess, jobs wouldn't allow you, right? Like if you could be a medium, you could be, you know, kind of respected in your own right as this kind of expert. Yeah. So with Madame Blavatsky, this this movement and, and her position in the Theosophical Society, this really allowed her to to become this kind of charismatic character and in, in charge of 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 so much and influencing so many people that that otherwise without the spiritualism movement she probably wouldn't have been able to do that like with, without the spiritual movement like what do you think she'd be like a carnival barker like like what do you think she would have done you know because she's she's clearly this this you know very charismatic very manipulative kind of person
1: it's really difficult to say isn't it because Obviously, there was the spiritualism movement, and Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. Obviously, the senior members of the Theosophical Society were largely composed of well to do women and well to do gay men. Mm -hmm. Although, obviously, this was kept quiet and this was perhaps sort of, you know, elided, but obviously, gay men, obviously, although, you know, outwardly homophobic. Outwardly homophobic movements. theosophy had no time for homophobia or anything mm-hmm. but women and gay men were largely significant in the theosophical movement you had a lot of very celibate celibate men who liked carnations um <laughs> but in the 19th century was the period where alternative religions really started to happen mm-hmm. I mean, some often people ask me um, what's the difference between a new religion and a cult, and the difference is about 30 years. If a cult survives long enough to actually successfully pass on to another group of people after its founders have died, Mm -hmm. then you have a religion on your hands. Essentially... If spiritualism hadn't happened, something else would have. Right. Because there were so many alternative religions. And so obviously, you know, you think of like, oh, my favorite one, I forget what they were called to begin with, but they set a date of the apocalypse Mm -hmm. and they all waited for the apocalypse to come and it didn't. But then they decided that that was God teaching them a lesson Mm -hmm. and they should be more sensible. And they called that in their annals, the Great Disappointment. (laughs) And they're now the Seventh-day Adventists.
2: Oh, no.
1: The Millerites. That's right. They were called the Millerites. And then, you know, and then, of course, we know what happens with the Church of the Latter-day Saints, Uh Jehovah's Witness, the Christian Science Movement. All of those are basically the winners of that big huge explosion of alternative communities that happened in that period Mm -hmm. the theosophical society was different because it never really wanted to set itself up as an actual religion but it very much positioned itself as something that was attractive to the elite Mm -hmm. so theosophical ideas quickly wound up becoming Part of the conversation among like elite people in the late 19th and early 20th century. And across Europe. You know, so there are there's a French chapter, there's a German chapter, the German chapter is led by Rudolf Steiner, who decides that Theosophy needs less Hinduism and more Christianity because it's not white enough.
0: It's so interesting to me how much all of these kind of religious movements in in the sort of latter half of the 19th century are tied up in um, in kind of racism and eugenics, you know. And as you mentioned, of course, this fed a lot into Madame Blavatsky's ideas. But but basically, I mean, we're we're saying looking at looking at her life, she's she's pretty much like a charlatan that decided to kind of capitalize on like Victorian racism in order to kind of make herself famous. You know, but but not
1: just Victorian racism, a Victorian desire for experiences, a Victorian desire for transcendence in the face of the rise of science, which a lot of people thought was challenging the church. Uh huh. And also a Victorian interest in travel and in other cultures. Mm -hmm. So that whole hippie thing. And again, the hippie thing wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the theosophists right like we've all we all know an old hippie who turned out to be a bit of a racist Mm -hmm. there's a reason for that
0: right 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 for for something that is essentially like a grift though like to completely change the world to, to have this much influence over the future it's it's unbelievable
1: It is. And people don't really see it because obviously she's just like a weird looking old woman with amazing eyes. Yeah. Smoked a lot of cigarettes and had terrible bad breath and like toilet humor. Yeah. (laughs) And who had a way with stage magic. Mm -hmm. But her influence goes beyond that. And there is a family tree and that family tree goes to. Heinrich Himmler with his idea of Aryanism who Mm -hmm. sent that expedition to Tibet with their calipers and their measuring equipment to find the root of the Aryan race and also they quite liked the Hindu thing which is why the symbol of the National Socialist Party was a Hindu symbol of goodness
0: So that's where the swastika comes from and all of this is Madame Blavatsky's influence
1: Yeah, because actually, um, you look at the secret doctrine and look at all of the symbolism and diagrams in it, Mm -hmm. there's swastikas everywhere. Wow. Because they're Hindu symbols. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, you look at, um, I've seen a Victorian copy of Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book and it's decorated on the corners with little swastikas. Because they're all India. Um, When the um, SS expedition to Tibet Which actually had two purposes. The other purpose was to piss off the British Raj. Right? When it went to Tibet, the Tibetans were really pleased to see the Nazis. One, because they weren't British. And two, and they were quite happy to piss off the British. And two, because the Nazis were wandering around with good luck flags. Ooh. Okay, yeah. Another person who was heavily influenced by Madame Blavatsky was H.P. Lovecraft. Mm Mm-hmm. That fucking guy. In a fictional kind of way, though. Yeah, but in a fictional kind of way. But also, Lovecraft is a guy who literally wrote in a letter to Robert E. Howard. And let's face it, Robert E. Howard was hardly the most progressive people. He's the Conan the Barbarian guy. But yeah, he wrote in a letter to Robert E. Howard. Oh, yeah, you know, that Hitler guy. Not sure about his methods, but my heart's with him. Oh, Jesus. And even Robert E. Howard was like, probably need to dial back on that yeah
0: well,
1: yeah. yeah so you know e, oh and you know when robert e howard's telling you you're a bit too racist
0: gosh and um these these ideas about this uh this kind of other race like they do kind of come through in like pop culture too i mean i was thinking about um you know the david bowie song you know uh oh you pretty things he's got the You know the children they're the start of the coming race and when he was into all this kind of like occult stuff these ideas kind of come through um especially alistair crowley you know um i I think about the song quicksand but of course um around the
1: hunky dory era david bowie was totally into that theosophy and magic thing
0: yeah yeah definitely I mean it's my favorite album of his but (laughs) anyway it's a good um, record
1: you know it's it's a
0: good record yeah it's great I mean Queen
1: Bitch I mean
0: it's incredible right I know all my gym uh, soundtracks I mean (laughs) that's the music I listen to
1: when I work out fantastic Um,
0: (laughs) but anyway um I mean it's interesting to to, you know kind of have it's almost, I don't know, I almost kind of see it as like two branches. So you have like that that kind of like occultism that kind of came down through like kind of Aleister Crowley and kind of influences, I guess, magic that you would say kind of like now. But then you also have like these kind of like new agey ideas, which aren't necessarily tied to the occult so much as like these ideas about kind of like wellness and and kind of like racism and and things like that. Like to me, they kind of seem like two different things.
1: But Crowley's magic is largely predicated on a rejection of Blavatsky.
0: Right, right, exactly.
1: So Blavatsky believed in the left-hand path and right-hand path and is the first person to write about it. Yeah. Crowley's like, left hand all the way, baby. (laughs) Um, But that's because Madame Blavatsky said, you take the right-hand path because that is the correct way to do magic. You don't do the left-hand path. That's bad magic.
0: Right, right. But, like, on the right-hand path, which is allegedly the okay one, like, it's still all right to come up with, like, all these, like, bullshit racist theories that are going to influence the Nazis, because that's totally chill.
1: Well, these people think they're the goodies.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: Ugh. I mean, you could even, you could even draw it as Harry Potter, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you look at Gryffindor or how fascists see themselves, and um, Slytherin or how, um, how other people see fascists, basically. Right. Dungeons and Dragons actually draws from a lot of the fantasy that was inspired by Madame Blavatsky.
0: That is wild.
1: And obviously it draws from Tolkien, which is not inspired by Madame Blavatsky mm-hmm. at all. But D&D is probably the only place where you can... The, the first edition of the Dungeon Master's Guide includes a big old reading list, and it includes Tolkien, but it includes all this swords and sorcery stuff a lot of which just draws directly from theosophy. Conspiracy theories as well, like, for example, um, do you know about the Shaver mystery? No. Richard Sharp Shaver was a guy who had that specific delusion where he believed that there were machines telling him beaming thoughts into his head and they were being run by malevolent beings who lived under the earth. He wrote to amazing stories, Um, the science fiction magazine to sort of talk about his experiences and what he actually believed and the guy's like the guy who ran amazing stories was like this guy is insane but damn this is good i'm going to run this as a story so he lightly rewrote sharpshavers stuff as, as fiction but with an editorial and said or is it And um, the story of the Darrow's, the idea of like an under the ground society, that still persists. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the foundation of the Jordan Peele movie, uh, Us. Right. although Jordan Peele uses it to make some fantastic anti-racist points. Again, Shaver Mystery, the first story is called I Remember Lemuria. That lasting conspiracy theory, that lasting urban legend is based upon someone whose delusions heavily involved Lemuria and Atlantis.
0: Absolutely amazing. So where can we find more about you and your work?
1: Right. Well, I've recently, um, having left Twitter, because it turns out that coming out as non-binary on Trans Day of Visibility um, means that the algorithm really punishes you on Twitter. Yeah. And having left Twitter, I'm now on Blue Sky. And you can find me on Blue Sky as Parthenoid Not social I think, is the one. Um, you can still find my website at room207press.com, although there haven't been many public blog posts there. I'm going to start putting things up there quite soon. Um, I have a Patreon, which is still under my old name, um, Howard David Ingham. So it's patreon.com slash Howard David Ingham. And for $1 a month, you can read everything on it so yes and you can find my previous books on amazon and i will soon have a book called the question embodies if i ever get it finished
0: all right that is absolutely amazing thank you so much sean we really appreciate it
1: all right it's been a real pleasure you it's always a delight talking to you jessica
0: Once again, I'd like to thank Sean Ingham for being our guest today. They have many books out, as Howard David Ingham, and you can find them and their ectoplasm experiment at room207press.com. I would also like to thank our amazing patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Sean Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Scott Loman, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon.com slash DirtySexyHistory, or you can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon, or Blue Sky at History. We will post photos from today's show on our Instagram as well. You can check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there, too. There's lots of great stuff up there, so stop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Happy Halloween.